Welcome back to Lawyers, Guns, and Money. I'm your producer, Jack Bryan. In this week's episode, we're going to look at the role that militia organizations played in Mattis's story and in the Contra War more broadly. In a lot of ways, this episode is sort of about the birth of the modern American militia movement. So last week, we met John Mattis, a Miami public defender whose first client has told him he's been running guns into Nicaragua with the assistance of the CIA to arm right-wing rebel groups in Nicaragua known as the Contras. This is 1985, after Congress has outlawed aid to these groups. That information, though, didn't help Mattis' client, Jesus Garcia, who has been convicted on a gun charge and is awaiting sentencing. But Mattis did get in touch with the office of newly elected Senator John Kerry and was told that Kerry's staff would join his investigation. Now, I'll be back at the end, and you might hear my voice once or twice throughout this episode. But for now, I'd like to hand you off to my fellow producer and our host, John Cryer. Thanks, Jack. I'm John Cryer, and this is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So as of 1986, Mattis is wearing two hats. On weekdays, Mattis tracks down supporting evidence that Jesus Garcia is exposing a government gun-running operation to get him a lighter sentence. On weekends, he works with John Kerry's staff to investigate the larger secret war. Now, Mattis's client, Jesus Garcia, agrees not only to introduce Mattis to the gun-runners in the operation, but also the mercenaries and militia members fighting in Nicaragua with CIA funding and support. My pitch to the mercenaries, or freedom fighters as they prefer to be called, was, look, this is a fellow brother-in-arms who has now fallen by the wayside. You've got to come help him get out. Well, the first person we arranged to interview was shooter Joe Adams. He was the personal bodyguard to Adolfo Calero, the actual head of the Contra forces. He had seen everything. He was in on everything. And... So I arranged for Shooter Joe to come to Washington, D.C. When we picked him up at the airport, he was very nervous. And he said, I don't feel comfortable here in Washington. I got to get down to my bags. Well, the reason he didn't, didn't feel comfortable, he didn't have half of the weaponry that he had shipped up to meet with us. After the third handgun that he was taking out of his suitcases, at the luggage claim area at Reagan Airport, it was like... He's pulling guns out of his bag at Reagan Airport? Yeah, a load of them. I wanted to stand away from him, but he felt more comfortable once he got locked and loaded. We packed him up and took him over to a hotel with all his weaponry and sat there and interviewed him for hours. Shooter Joe Adams was just so comfortable revealing every component of a war that on its face was totally illegal. Mercenaries, volunteers, drug traffickers, fighting with the Contras against the Sandinistas, and that it had been going on much earlier than Garcia's involvement and was continuing as we spoke. Shooter Joe Adams says, well, you know, the person you really ought to talk to is Colonel Flacco the mysterious mercenary, Colonel Flacco, a.k.a. maybe his real name, Jack Terrell. Shooter described him as the center and the organizer and the leader of their operations, plural, 
inside Nicaragua. I was given a phone number for Colonel Flacco. So I called it and I said, hi, this is John Mattis. And this mysterious man goes, this is Flacco. I was waiting for your calls. This is from a 1992 interview with Jack Terrell, who uses the codename Colonel Flacco in his Contra operations. Terrell, or Flacco, looks almost cartoonishly like a southern gentleman with graying blonde hair and a thinly coiffed mustache. So during this time, I was discovered by the then public defender, John Mattis in Florida, who was representing a Cuban by the name of Jesus Garcia, who had told him a very, very tall tale uh, as far as assassinations and plots and plans uh, regarding the war. The only person who believed this was John Mattis. He called me on a long shot and said, I heard this, I heard this, I heard this. Do you know anything about it? And when I went into it, it was like, oh my God, look what I found. Now, before we go any further, there's something we should probably address. So you may be wondering, how John Kerry's office is paying to fly people around and just generally finance an investigation. Well, remember how last week we said this investigation started when Mattis was introduced to a friend of his sister's, a Kerry donor named Phil? The same fundraiser for John Kerry said, I will finance a private Senate investigation of this illegal war. They would arrange for plane tickets for me, hotels, and the same for John Kerry's staff. This was the private investigation of Senator John Kerry. In 1986, Kerry is only one year into his first term as the freshman senator from Massachusetts. Kerry had made a name for himself in the 1970s as a Vietnam veteran turned anti-war activist. This is from a 1971 appearance on the Dick Cavett show that John Kerry made 14 years before becoming a senator. And quite frankly, when I was in Vietnam, I have to say to you that I just could never feel that I was there fighting to save that country, to make it safe for democracy. The only feeling you could have was that you were like the German, that you were there occupying another country. Now, we're not going to go through the entire history of the Vietnam War, but it's going to keep coming up. So briefly, like Nicaragua, Vietnam starts as a covert Cold War operation. This time, the mission is to prop up the government of South Vietnam and defeat the communist North Vietnamese. By the time Kennedy dies in 1963, the United States has 15,000 troops in the country, which are referred to as advisors in a pretty ham-handed attempt to conceal why they're there. An advisor never gives orders. He only gives suggestions in a manner that respects the traditions and autonomy of the people of Vietnam. Vietnam becomes a creeping war. After a firefight breaks out in 1964 between North Vietnamese troops and patrolling American ships, it gives President Johnson the excuse he needs to escalate the war. By the time Nixon leaves office in 1974, 58,000 Americans have died, and Vietnam's capital, Saigon, has fallen to communist forces. The shooting on this day the communists won was not in a battle, but a celebration. Saigon had already surrendered. In the aftermath, most Americans believe the fighting went on too long and cost too much, both in terms of lives and money. Soldiers returning home feel disillusioned with the lack of support they receive from Americans. The military itself goes into an existential crisis. They are the first American soldiers to lose a war, and many members of the military and the far right come up with an alternative narrative that the loss was not a military defeat. Rather, they believe the problem was that Washington didn't let the generals go far enough. 
They believe Washington was unwilling to do the hard work needed to defeat communism. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who's about to become a central character in the story, expressed this sentiment when he appeared before the Senate in D.C. Colonel North, Robert McFarlane has suggested that your Vietnam experience affected your view of the Contras and their situation in Nicaragua. Mr. McFarlane, correct about that? Counsel, I don't believe that anyone who served in Vietnam, who saw what happened when, in my opinion, we won all the battles and then lost the war, could ever be unaffected by that unless they were totally insensitive. I would also point out that we didn't lose the war in Vietnam. We lost the war right here in this city. And look, we should probably note that you'd have a pretty hard time finding any serious independent analysis that backs up that conclusion. The United States dropped more bombs in Vietnam than we dropped in all of World War II, and that was America's longest war until Afghanistan. So, you know, not like we didn't go hard on Vietnam. And even internal Pentagon assessments long concluded that that war was unwinnable. All the same, it's important to understand this perspective because it's going to shape much of what comes, and much of what is to come deals directly with Oliver North. North is a Texas-born, highly decorated Marine. His defenders describe him as a clean-cut Boy Scout and a patriot. His critics claim he's a serial liar who wraps himself in the flag to avoid accountability. While North will go on to become a household name, as of 1985, his only noteworthy public appearance is on the conservative talk show Firing Line, recorded in 1971, the same year as the John Kerry clip we played. In this appearance, he pushes back against claims that journalists and activists like John Kerry have made about soldiers in Vietnam. In fact, John Kerry's name actually comes up that night. I mean, Captain Kerry says that, uh, that war crimes are what, what you see as a matter of, of course. Is it possible that you simply were in fact shielded from what, what mostly happened? I don't think we were shielded. So over the three uh, plus years of commanding or observing uh, troops in combat, we never knew of a single instance of an atrocity. For what it's worth, a few months before making this appearance, North testified as a character witness for a soldier who was charged with the murder of 16 Vietnamese civilians. So, you know, it might be a little much for him to say he had never even heard of any atrocities happening. As of spring 1986, North works in the office of the National Security Council, the body that advises and helps implement the president's national security policy, which appears central to the Contra War, the war which was being led in the field by mercenary Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco. And he said, meet me on a certain street in the French Quarter in New Orleans, so... I flew there with my investigator, Ralph Maestri, and we met with a member from John Kerry's staff, and there was Colonel Flacco. The next thing I know, I'm being visited by the staff of Senator John Kerry. And he took us down some alleyways into an apartment complex. I never could figure out how he supported himself or what he really did. He said that we would never be able to figure out his background totally. This is Jonathan Weiner, the member of John Kerry's staff we met last week who's helping Mattis investigate. Yeah, Terrell was an extraordinary character. You ever feel like you got to the bottom of his story? Uh, no, not completely. He admitted he was, uh, he had been a juvenile delinquent, whatever that meant, and that he had a criminal background. I sort of had a history of being associated with uh, intelligence people and uh, certain military aspects of, of covert operations as far back as 1958. 
At the early age of 18, in Washington, D.C., I met and came to know real well uh, a, a gentleman that had run some operations with the CIA, and he introduced me to some people, kind of became, you might say, the romantic notion that uh, becoming an intelligence agent would, uh, would really be something in my life. According to the book Terrell would go on to write, he was 18 years old in 1958, serving an 18-year sentence in a D.C. prison for a robbery crime spree he had committed at the age of 15. Terrell says that while in prison, he was singled out as highly intelligent and resourceful and was selected for a special sponsorship program where he would be mentored by a Washington businessman and former Naval underwater demolitions officer named Milton G. Nottingham Jr. According to Terrell, Nottingham worked with the CIA and introduced Terrell to the world of covert operations. Of course, I was too young at that time. After meeting the man in Washington, I went back to Alabama, started a business, but as, as um, my life progressed, I came to know uh, a lot of people by association. And I think that he was essentially, um, most likely, somebody who was used for decades, off and on, by elements of the United States government as a, uh, a resource. As a resource. Flacco never pointed the finger at the CIA, which was interesting. So I've been trying to drill down a little bit on Flacco. I found one reference to him complaining that the CIA had censored a lot of his book. Is that something they could have done if he hadn't worked with them in some official capacity? No. No. While Terrell's FBI file is still heavily redacted, one CIA cable written in 1987 and declassified in 2011 refers to Terrell as a former CIA employee. I did not uh, get drafted, nor did I join the uh, effort in Vietnam. And during this time, I, I spent money and sort of amused myself by uh, training as a civilian with special forces units out of Mississippi. I. Uh, came to learn a great deal about military operations, weapons, and actually did a brief stint with the Gray Scouts at the end of the Rhodesian conflict. So the war that Terrell says he fought in as a mercenary is the Rhodesian Bush War, a long-lasting civil conflict from 1964 to 1979, fought between the white minority government and the black majority population in the unrecognized African country of Rhodesia. After Vietnam, many American veterans looking for action joined the conflict as mercenaries, fighting on the side of the white government. In fact, mercenaries account for 60% of Rhodesia's white army. My involvement in the Contra War came about after the shootdown of two Alabamians in September of 1984. So at this time, it's illegal for the government to supply the Nicaraguan rebels, known as Contras, but private organizations that claim they are working independent of the U.S. government have stepped in to provide aid. One such group is CMA, or Civilian Military Assistance, a right-wing militia run out of Alabama. Then, in 1984, a CMA helicopter is shot down over Nicaragua, killing two Alabama mercenaries. And had read about this in the newspaper. The government sort of... Uh, took the line first of, you know, we don't know who these individuals are. It was like uh, two tourists went to Nicaragua and decided to fly an MD-500 with 2.75 rockets on it into a military academy. So my initial instinct was uh, one of a patriotic sort of knee-jerk reaction to uh, Americans being killed in this war. 
I became more enthralled with the idea of uh, going down and doing my part to wage war against the communist threat in Nicaragua and being a southerner with the values that I have, I sort of honed in on civilian military assistance group because they were located in Alabama. CMA, the group that Jack Terrell is talking about joining, was a big player in the early American militia movement. Civilian military assistance supplies and fights alongside the Contras in Nicaragua. He yokes up with of CMA, civilian military assistance, which was a bunch of flakes, a lot of from the South, who wanted some action, like some of the people who did the insurrection January 6th. As he said, a motley crew of misfits, loaders, and good old boys in search of adventure determined to combat midlife crisis. Most CMA members are an extremist version of the disaffected anti-communist veterans we were talking about earlier. For them, the fight against communism is both a political and a religious struggle. CMA members see themselves as Christian soldiers protecting America against the spread of the atheist communists. They see secular and progressive society from the anti-war movement to the civil rights movement to the labor movement and Democrats in Congress as extensions of communist values. And so they increasingly see themselves at odds with both their homeland and large portions of the American government. For them, America never really surrendered in Vietnam. For them, the war simply moved closer to home. Its founder and leader is another Alabamian named Tom Posey. As Posey returns home from the Vietnam War, like many disaffected veterans, he goes looking for new ways to maintain the fight against communism. Posey joins a hard-right anti-communist group known as the John Birch Society, then the Ku Klux Klan before founding CMA a militia group which patrols the southern border with Mexico and supports the Contra fighters. By the mid-80s, CMA swells to 5,000 members spanning all 50 states. CMA, the private aid group with which Terrell was affiliated, is headed by Tom Posey, who's visited Contra camps in Honduras at least eight times since 1984. A Vietnam veteran himself, Posey is intimately familiar with the way the Contras operate and on a first-name basis with their commanders. And if you'll remember from episode one, we mentioned that Mattis's client, Jesus Garcia, worked as a Miami jailer. Well, Jesus claims he connected with the Nicaraguan gun-running operation through a prisoner who he gave preferential treatment to. That prisoner was Tom Posey, the leader of the militia group CMA. Jesus claims he then made introductions connecting the militia organization with other Miami Cubans who support the Contras. Soon, or perhaps from the start, Posey and CMA are receiving CIA funding and U.S. military supplies to conduct Contra operations. We met with Posey at CMA headquarters in Decatur, Alabama. He says thousands of CMA members from around the country have donated millions of dollars worth of aid for the Contras. Civilian backpack, cards, silverware for the troops, and Tom Posey isn't the only American private citizen helping the Contras. Now, in the spring of 1986, there was talk of people like General Singlob and people from that era assisting the Contras, doing, quote, private fundraising and helping them out. Retired General John Singlob's private mission to raise money for the Nicaraguan Contra rebels very much mirrors the public mission of President Ronald Reagan. 
It is widely understood that the Reagan administration is aware of and tacitly approves of Singlaub's activities. General John Singlaub is an extreme anti-communist and a founding member of the U.S. chapter of the World Anti-Communist League. And like Posey, he's also a member of the John Birch Society. Singlaub has been someone at the cross-sections of the military and intelligence communities since the Second World War as a member of the Army working with OSS, the precursor to the CIA. In 1977, General Singlaub is fired for publicly criticizing President Carter, claiming he underestimated the communist threat by deciding to pull troops out of the Korean peninsula. In the mid-1970s, around the time Singlaub was fired, it was revealed that the FBI has been spying on and infiltrating left-wing movements. Congress outlaws the practice, and Singlaub fills in the gap, founding the private intelligence firm Western Goals. With financing from a right-wing donor network, Western Goals acquires many of the files those FBI investigations produced, and Western Goals continues the operations the U.S. government is now forbidden from conducting. Again, it is a right-wing network attempting to replace the U.S. government as the force for countering communism. There's a lot of overlap between Singlaub's Western Goals and Posey's CMA, but Posey is quick to play that relationship down. Do you know General Singlaub? I've met him, yes sir, twice at the World Anti-Communist League in Dallas, Texas. Talked to him for about an hour. And uh, we just talked. However, he does not, well, let me ask you. Does, does he control us? No, sir. So when a CMA air raid ends with the shoot down of one of their helicopters and the death of two Alabama mercenaries, it's front page news. But with no proof of US government involvement, few notice. Jack Terrell certainly did. So I sought CMA out and through Tom Posey met some of the members of the organization in New Orleans, Louisiana at the logistics headquarters of the Contra group known as the FDN, the uh, Nicaraguan Democratic Force, which had its warehouse located in New Orleans. And the FDN is the main Nicaragua Contra army, while CMA is their American support network. He told a story that someone asked him to get involved in the war to keep an eye on it. After my first meeting with this group, I was then contacted by the late Donald Fortier, who was then the number three man in the National Security Council. Okay, so this is important. Flacco is saying that after he connects with this militia group run by Tom Posey, which supports the Nicaraguan Contra rebels, he gets a phone call from Donald Fortier. Fortier is the principal deputy assistant to the president for national security affairs. He reports directly to the national security advisor, the top advisor to the president on all national security matters. I had never met Donald Fortier in my life. And even to this day, I question why Donald Fortier called me. And I have to believe that it was mainly because I was known to certain people in Washington and also that I was uh, available to become involved in covert operations, which I made no secret of. I was offered uh, $50,000 to uh, carry out this uh, so-called mission for 48, to become his eyes and ears uh, in Honduras or Nicaragua. But keeping an eye on it. I mean, he was leading military operations inside Nicaragua. So it was much more hands-on than just a quiet observer. The mission was uh, 
suggested to me that I was to put in place was something similar to the Phoenix Project that was carried out in Vietnam. And the Phoenix Project was the CIA's torture and assassination program during the Vietnam War, which killed over 26,000 people suspected of Viet Cong membership. In this particular case, it was an operation known as Operation Pegasus to get 240 Nicaraguans and Americans combined into Managua to attack the infrastructure, uh, blow certain dams north of Managua, which would have virtually killed 20 or 30,000 people, and also assassinate at least five of the leaders of the Sandinista movement. But uh, this was a very elaborate plan, and it was a very serious plan. And he had told me in the conversations, when you go down there, you know, we'll be in touch and you can tell us what's going on. But I never had anybody to report to. Never talked to the man again. I always wondered, well, when am I going to be contacted? But extraordinary amounts of money was left in safety deposit boxes and given to me by strange people. I had more money than I knew what to do with and was spending it pretty rapidly for supplies there. So I was sort of spun off on my own and took things in my own hands. To help Terrell get a leadership position in CMA, Fortier also gave Terrell a fake backstory to help bolster his credentials. I also was given a resume and a persona of a former uh, major in the Army that was involved in certain classified operations in Laos that literally could not be disproved because both of those operations are classified to this day. So it was sort of like inventing a person that I would become in order to have credibility with the FDN and also with the CMA, which uh, they bought hook, line, and sinker. I mean, this later came back to haunt me by them saying, well, I lied to get in the group. This is Adolfo Calero, the man who ran the FDN, the most powerful faction of the Contra army. Well, Mr. Terrell presented himself to us as a former member of the special forces of the United States. And I later found out that he never got even close to that. Of course I lied. It's a covert operation, but it accomplished what I wanted to do. And that was become directly involved with the Contras, which ultimately led me into Honduras and the main Contra base at Las Vegas. Now, it might sound strange to hear that a mercenary is running America's invasion of Nicaragua, but if what Terrell is saying is true, he wouldn't be the first American mercenary to invade Nicaragua. In fact, the first time Americans invade Nicaragua, it's led by a mercenary. His name is William Walker, and he is a Nashville-born filibusterer. Now, you might not have heard the term filibuster outside of politics, but in the early 1800s, Filibustering meant to rise up a private army, invade a foreign country, and seize control of their government to establish a new slave state and diminish the power of northern U.S. states that opposed slavery. It's convoluted, I know. But many point to the acquisition of Texas by the United States as an example of successful filibustering. So in 1854, Walker invades and takes power in Nicaragua with the financial backing of railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, only to be pushed out the following year by neighboring countries. But the U.S. wasn't done with Nicaragua. In 1909, the U.S. supports an uprising which overthrows the country's democratically elected leader and rebellion breaks out against the new American-backed regime. In the 1930s, the United States helps the right-wing Somoza family take power in Nicaragua, and then it helps keep them in power despite frequent rebellions against their oppressive rule. For the 45 years in which they've ruled Nicaragua, 
The Somosa family has used this force as a private army to terrorize the population. And for most of those 45 years, the Somosa troops have been funded, equipped, and trained by the United States. In 1978, the violence of the Somoza regime becomes a little too much for U.S. President Jimmy Carter, and he ends U.S. financial support for the Nicaraguan government. It was not until this summer that an American president finally decided to confront the National Guard by cutting off all military aid to Somoza. It was the beginning of the end of a long affair. Then in 1979, one year after Jimmy Carter pulled U.S. support, a left-wing rebel group calling itself the Sandinistas overthrows the Somoza government and takes power in Nicaragua. July 1979, Nicaragua dictator Anastasio Somoza is overthrown. The Sandinistas move in, promising a better life, and some things have improved, such as education and health care. But a number of Nicaraguans say not the most important thing, democracy. Despite concerns of the Sandinistas' lack of a democratic process, America, under Carter, recognizes the new regime. But as Ronald Reagan takes office in 1981, he sees it as part of his Cold War strategy to resist the new left-wing government. Reagan, using the CIA, creates a right-wing Nicaraguan rebel army known as the Contras. Two months after his inauguration, the president approved the funds which Casey used to create the Contras. Their ultimate goal was the violent overthrow of the Nicaraguan government, a government the United States legally recognizes. As long as there is breath in this body, I will speak and work, strive and struggle for the cause of the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. Then in 1984, Congress steps in and stops it, outlawing the White House from providing aid. May 1984, the CIA is forced to admit it has mined one of the Sandinistas' main ports. A foreign policy blunder that so enrages Congress, it passes the Boland Amendment, banning all military aid to the Contras. Which brings us to 1986, where John Mattis is meeting with mercenary Jack Terrell, codenamed Colonel Flacco, who is apparently one of the men leading this covert war in Nicaragua on the ground. Once Flacco gets involved, he flies to Honduras. So if you're invading a country, you need a place to invade from, right? a place where your troops are safe to plan and launch operations and, you know, sleep. But because the Contras haven't taken any territory in Nicaragua, their operations are all based in neighboring countries, the country just to the north of Nicaragua, Honduras, and the country just to the south of Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Both countries are officially neutral, but are allowing these activities either passively or actively. As one U.S. military official told me, in Honduras, this is kind of a surrealistic war. On the one hand, the Honduran government not officially recognizing the Contras have set up camp within their borders, at the same time accepting U.S. aid to assist the so-called freedom fighters. It doesn't take too long after Flacco's arrival at the Contra military base in Honduras before he starts getting disillusioned with his mission. The officers running this uh, army lived in virtual luxury in a jungle. But right below three strands of barbed wire were thousands of starving campesinas that they called the Contras. And the things that were being preached in the United States about, uh, oh, yes, uh, these people are the equivalent of our founding fathers, you know. For context, around this time, the Reagan administration, in addition to leveling often valid criticisms of the Sandinista government, also makes somewhat ridiculous analogies advocating for the Contra rebels. I've spoken recently of the freedom fighters of Nicaragua. You know the truth about them. You know who they're fighting and why. They are the moral equal of our founding fathers. And that the 
Nicaraguans fleeing the Sandinistas to join the Contras. Many who had fought the old Somoza dictatorship literally took to the hills and like the French resistance that fought the Nazis, began fighting the Soviet bloc communists and their Nicaraguan collaborators. These few have now been joined by thousands. Just a bold-faced lie. They were conscripting people by, while the younger men were out working the coffee fields or whatever, they would murder the families and then they would go tell the young men, oh, come look, see what the Sandinistas did. When the people arrived at the contrabase, the first thing that happened to them was they took their shoes away from them so they could not walk back. They were, were brutally trained and beat with uh, bamboo sticks to keep them in line. And if they tried to escape, they were murdered. The public was being told they're going to pressure the Sandinistas into some type of election or peace. The freedom fighters seek a political solution. They are willing to lay down their arms and negotiate to restore the original goals of the revolution. A democracy in which the people of Nicaragua choose their own government. That is our goal also. But I found out real fast that that was not the agenda. The agenda was told to me directly by Bermudas. And Bermudas is the top general in the field for the FDN, the main Contra army. That they were there to create an incident which would cause some type of border incursion that would get the United States directly involved in a war in Nicaragua. Remember how earlier we said Vietnam starts as a covert war, but when a firefight breaks out between America and North Vietnamese troops, it gives the president the pretext to send in a full invasion? Well, Terrell is hearing that creating such a pretext is the real mission of the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. You create a threat. And then if you have this threat, which they call the Sandinistas, and then you amplify it to something a hundred times greater than what it is. Well, the Nicaraguan communists have threatened to carry their revolution into the United States itself. Then you have uh, a great deal of support in your corner to, to fight a war. And throughout Honduras was very evident of a massive buildup the United States government was carrying on. So you, you had a force of people who were, were murderers and thieves uh, running a massive army at the expense of the U.S. government taxpayer with the agenda of never taking an inch of dirt in Nicaragua. But he saw them all as wildly dishonest, corrupt, dangerous people, laundering the money, stealing the money, and uh, the hierarchy, the people that were, were trotted out with Reagan in front of televisions, people like Adolfo Calero, were actually living in luxurious houses and condominiums in Miami. Adolfo and Arturo, would you kind of come up here and stand by my side? I want to tell you something. We're in this together. I gave them the nickname of Pinstripe Gorillas, so they fought a great war for Miami. But they had the only time they went to the field was to put a dog and pony show on for the television networks, rallying the troops to go fight. But there was nothing being accomplished. So I guess in a way they are counter-revolutionary and God bless them for being that way. And I guess that makes them Contras and so it makes me a Contra too. Not only is Terrell becoming disillusioned with the Contra forces, he's also starting to question his values and the anti-communist right-wing militia movement led by Tom Posey that brought him to Honduras. 
people I call legends in their own mind, the people that were drifting into Honduras through CMA and other channels by going out and, uh, as Posey put it, killing a commie for mommy. I had asked an American one time who had a gun in his hand near the border. I said, go across the border and bring me back a communist. And he started towards the border and then he stopped and he turned and looked at me and he says, well, what does a communist look like? And I said, my God, this is a graphic example of what's going on in the United States. What does a communist look like? Especially when you have peasant fighters that are given a gun with an hour training by either the Sandinistas or by the Contras and saying shoot at each other and these people can't even tell you what democracy means much less what communism means and when I went to Honduras I was three shades right of Muammar Gaddafi but as I witnessed these things and, and lived them people said I went from ultra right to this flaming liberal because I just uh, I got an education in a very short time that had I known when I was a young man growing up in a segregated Birmingham, Alabama, would have probably been shot by the Klan back then for carrying a picket sign because I would have gone against what I was taught about segregation. So your ideological bent is learned behavior. And I was acting on the instinct of learned behavior of what I thought patriotism meant. You know, being a good American, what we are brainwashed into believing what good Americans are all about. Again, this is Adolfo Calero, the head of the FDN, the main Contra Army. Mr. Terrell, you know, who... Jack Terrell. Yes, Jack Terrell. Terrell. He was a great Contra supporter. He wanted to make an Operation Pegasus and he wanted to invade Nicaragua. He wanted to do very many things. When we got a notion of what kind of man he was... Then he left us and went to the Indians, to the Mosquito Indians. I was so disenchanted with the FDN and, and the corruption and the lies. I changed factions of the Contras. I went down to advise a confederation of Indian tribes on the eastern coast of Nicaragua, and they went under the confederation name of the Missouras. I found these people to be the true victims of this war. I walked through some of these refugee camps. There's thousands and thousands of people starving to death, but not one word of it was ever showing up in a newspaper. The Contras under the FDN fought with no purpose. They were just there. Whereas the Mosquito Indians had a burning desire to have their own autonomous state in Nicaragua, and they were prepared to die to the last man to get it. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And I have the documentation to prove it. So I saw this as an opportunity to help somebody where, and do something that counted. The Indians were prepared to sit down with the Sandinistas and negotiate peace. And then they were, in turn, prepared to turn around and fight the Contras to keep them out of their territory. So when I went in this direction, the Reagan administration saw this real quickly as something that was diverting from their foreign policy initiative. Do not have an American citizen down here telling a couple of hundred thousand starving Indians what to do, especially when they've got enough armament to really take on their so-called Contras and defeat them. When I came to Washington, D.C., to sit down and negotiate with then-Senator Jeremiah Denton, my senator from Alabama, to ask for a plane load of food and medicine for these people. I was quickly put in touch with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. 
Now, remember, Oliver North is the guy at the National Security Council who claims the Vietnam War was lost in Washington. He reports directly to Donald Fortier, the man Terrell claims enlisted him in the operation. Now, around this time, Fortier contracts terminal cancer, retires from government, and his replacement appears not to have been included in the Contra operation, creating a direct line between North and National Security Advisor John Poindexter. Denton's representative called O'Reilly and said, here's a guy that's down there with, you know, a bunch of Americans. They're training these Indians. He's come here and asked for help. But it became more of a bargain because I also had in my possession a map which showed three very large cocaine processing plants in Nicaragua. And North wanted the coordinates off this map to turn a satellite around to take pictures of it so they could propagandize the Sandinistas by saying that they were drug dealers in a similar fashion as how they did with Barry Seal, which ultimately cost him his life because of the release of these photos. Barry Seal was a pilot who smuggled cocaine and ran guns to the Contras on behalf of the CIA. Seal was killed after pictures he took of Sandinista government officials loading one of his planes with cocaine was used by the Reagan administration to stir up support for the Contras. This picture, secretly taken at a military airfield outside Managua, shows Federico Vaughn, a top aide to one of the nine commandantes who rule Nicaragua, loading an aircraft with illegal narcotics bound for the United States. All I'm asking for is help from my government who says that they are now humanitarily supporting these people. And you're telling me the only way I can get it is trade you a map with cocaine plants on it so you can get a publicity hit? No way. So I walked out. And this angered North. Ultimately, we found out from Oliver North's own notebooks that Terrell was attempting to take control of the operation, Washington couldn't control him. So within five days, I returned to La Mesquitia and I had waiting on me a company, uh, special forces from the Honduran military, and I was given the option, walk out or be carried out. And I was brought out with a doozy pointed at my head, and this was at the direct orders of Oliver North through the State Department. So I came back to the United States by force. I was a man without a country. My papers were taken. Uh, I was persona non grata everywhere. I was devastated, destroyed. So there he was in New Orleans, all pissed off and sensing that the larger movement was being betrayed. So for him, what had happened to Jesus Garcia happened to people all along the way in this murky world of mercenaries and covert operations. There were ongoing day-in, day-out betrayals. Colonel Flacco spoke about how there were elements in the United States government that were rogue, a network inside the government, a private CIA orchestrating things that were wildly illegal all over the world. And that's really what the North Network turned out to be. So Jack had his finger on that. Remember John Singlaub, the guy publicly raising money for the Contras? Well, he's also part of the North Network. When Singlaub later testifies about his interactions with North, this is what he said. I was involved in openly 
supporting the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. When the media started to report on it, I discussed this with Colonel North, who expressed concern it might impact adversely upon his situation. We discussed uh, that there were advantages if the press was following me and asking me questions about this aid, and I was working clearly within the Bolin Amendment and every other law that I thought existed, then that would take the heat off of those who were trying to be uh, more covert in their actions. Colonel Flacco laid out a very intricate network going from Honduras to Miami, ultimately to Costa Rica, to the ranch of John Hull. And I was told by Claro that Hull was the CIA liaison to the FDN in Costa Rica. Which was the first time we had really heard in detail about this mysterious American rancher who was called the Jefe of Costa Rica, the man that ran the war in Costa Rica. Flacco fought from a staging ground in Honduras, the country just to the north of Nicaragua. And now he's telling Mattis that a man named John Hull is running the war in a country to the south of Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Colonel Flacco told us that he had just been to Costa Rica and two of the original mercenaries who had assisted in uh, the armed shipments out of Miami Two of those mercenaries were in jail in Costa Rica, and we ought to talk to them and help them out. So that's what we did. And I flew to Costa Rica, and that is when things got very dangerous for me. And when I realized I might not make it out. To us next time as Mattis starts finding connections between these independent groups supporting the Contras and the U.S. government. I'm Jack Bryan. And this has been John Cryer. Join us next time for more Lawyers, Guns, and Money. It's like, get the hell out of there, are you crazy? They're going to kill you. This is the CIA. No counter-kidnapping playbook you get in law school. It was just buying time. And they wanted me to be their conduit for leaks of information from various intelligence agencies that gave me a blueprint to exactly how they were running the war. Well, we'll see you next week or listen to next week's episode ad-free now at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. And you'll also hear another bonus episode this week, including the story of Flacco getting pulled out of Honduras from the perspective of one of the mercenaries that was with him at the time. And you'll hear more tales of assassination plots in Miami. That is lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Subscribe now. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is a Discount Sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Special thanks to Dennis Bernstein for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Terrell. Due to licensing constraints, a couple of the archive clips in this episode are reproductions. Copyright 2023. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.